You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. Now before we get into today's interview, I want to give you a little update. Last week, Rosaria Butterfield was supposed to join us to talk about homosexuality and Christianity and things of that sort. She's had something come up in her life, and she was unable to make it, unfortunately, with her deepest regret, and we are working on getting her to come in here sometime, uh, as soon as we can. I I don't know much beyond that, but she really does want to do the interview. So if you're looking for that one, please bear with us. Circumstances beyond our control, things like that happen. And whatever's going on in Rosario's life, be praying for her. But uh, this week, we're going to be talking about controversy. Because... If you've been on social media, if you've been in Christianity for a while, anything like that, you know, you're going to realize, believe it or not, we don't all agree on things. Now, there are some things, of course, every Christian has to agree on, but then there are secondaries. And sadly, sometimes these secondaries can seem to take the place of primaries, as it were. And one discussion that can usually become very, very heated is the age of the earth, where this week I've got one of the co-authors of the book, Controversy of the Ages, Why Christians Should Not Divide Over the Age of the Earth, here with me. His name is Theodore Cabal. Now, who is he? Dr. And by the way, his co-author is Peter Razor, and for a second, and we are going to be working on having him on the show on another topic sometime. He, I contacted him to see if he wanted to come on, too. He said, nah, let Dr. Cabal handle this one. And so, uh, Dr. Theodore James Cabal has taught philosophy and apologetics at Dallas Baptist University Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary and for the last 20 years at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. In addition to numerous journal articles and book chapters, he is the general editor of the Apologetic Study Bible, second edition, summer 2017, and co-author with Peter Razor of a book of a the Controversy of the Ages, Why Christians Should Not Divide Over the Age of the Earth, which we are talking about today. And I owe a special thanks to Weaver Book Company for getting in touch with me about this and sending this one to me. So, um, Dr. Cabal, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you for having me on. And by the way, just for the record, I would say my name something like you are, but it is pronounced Cable, for Cable. whatever it's worth. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, we, we actually got here a little bit late today. We both had major difficulties on our end, so I, I apologize for that one. That's my no bad. No problemo. We're, we're, we're good. Okay. So, uh, Dr. K. Barr, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, um, if I could make it a short version of how I got to where I am today, including writing this book, I would say 
the most interesting thing about it is that as a teenager, I was not only an atheist, but a rather evangelistic one. And that included essentially holding that the world itself is uh, caused by blind chance. I wasn't intellectual or anything, but I was very avid about promoting that idea with my friends, including family members who believe the Bible and so on. I was converted at the age of 20 while trying to read the New Testament so I could claim I knew something about Jesus and that it was all baloney. And Jesus had uh, the last word on that, and he captured me, and the loveliness of Jesus became my reality ever since 1973. Part of that um, coming to Christ was what I call a package plan, um, as is often, if not more often than not, the case with Christians. My faith and confidence in Jesus as my Savior was coupled with a confidence suddenly in the Bible that I had ridiculed. Now, I didn't have any intellectual reasons to say, oh, I've studied, I'm really brilliant, etc. I just knew that I I had met Christ personally in a way that was so overwhelmingly real. But I, I prayed a weird little prayer that first week, Nick, where I said, uh, Lord, you're more real to me than my next breath. But if I ever find out that you're not real, then I'm not going to pretend to be a Christian. And that led me without really knowing anything about the term apologetics or anything like that. It led me into a life of seeking to be honest and look at the evidences and reasons for why Christ is who he says he is and the Bible is true. And I'm really honored that the Lord uh, has allowed me to spend my adult life doing that sort of thing. So that's how I got here where I am. And we can talk a little bit more about what led me into writing the book, but I'm the least likely of probably my classmates all those years ago to be in the place where I am. So that's a little bit of a brief background. You know, and seeing I'm just thinking when I hear about how you used to be an evangelistic atheist thing, if you had been born around, say, late 90s or 2000, then you could very well be one of those atheists on YouTube shouting at Christians about how stupid they all are, right? Exactly. In fact, I think I probably would have been doing stuff like that. And it's interesting, um, you know, I, in 1973, there were no YouTubes, podcasts, as such that I had easy access to see the sorts of challenges that people today can so easily access and that, that claim Christianity is, is foolish. But what I can say, and every person has to find out these things in their own way and, and time, but I can honestly say that after more than four decades of looking at all of the evidence. If I were to walk away from Christ and biblical Christianity, it wouldn't be because I really deep down inside am convinced that it's bogus and that, let's say, atheism or some other religion or worldview is really the right one. It would be just simply because I'm a, I'm a sinner and I'm turning away for selfish reasons. So mm -hmm. um, Christ satisfies and he satisfies fully every part of us as we seek him. But that doesn't, of course, mean that we suddenly know everything or that we never have any questions. Yeah, I I think I would surprise a lot of people say, if I walk away from a faith, it 
largely going to be because of emotional reasons, if that were to ever happen. Because I find if mm-hmm. I have times of doubt and such, it's emotional doubt. Intellectually, things are right there. And it's really surprising me because usually they expect that, say, if I'm going to tell you about how Christian is true, I'm going to tell you about how I feel about Jesus. and things like that. No, mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you how he rose from the dead. That's it. Uh-huh. I hear you. Mm-hmm. Now, something else better. I think we should say about you here, and it was very surprising to me and very joyous when I found that you could actually come on my show, is you are a cancer survivor, aren't you? Indeed I am. Um, it, it, at the age of 48, 19, uh, excuse me, 2001, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is mm-hmm. called a blood cancer, similar to leukemia or lymphoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's considered terminal. I was told I had about three years to live. Um, it, it was amazing to see the incredible peace that God gave me at the time. I, I just was suddenly, uh, you know, I, I, the reality of all the years I've lived with the Lord were, were, uh, were paying off and that, because he was there, he was with me. But interestingly enough, um, after uh, years of chemotherapy, including a stem cell transplant, I had so been beaten up by the cancer um, that I was really having trouble writing. I, I had trouble organizing my thoughts. And the doctor said, well, let's give you a break from, from these treatments, see what the cancer does, and then we'll look at some different treatments so that the same parts of your body are not constantly being beat up. And that was 10 years ago, and the cancer is, I still have it, but it's asleep. And so we monitor it, um, and I've had some amazing life lessons from all of that, Nick, for which I'm deeply grateful. I wouldn't want anybody to go through cancer, and, and Christians understand this, and other people may not, but God uses things that we don't want. Sometimes we may want, we may totally have an aversion to, and yet these these bad things, God can use them in amazing ways to shape us such that we wouldn't want to go back to being like we were before. So ironically, as we'll get into maybe a bit later, that uh, that was going on about the time that I got drawn into the subject matter of this book. I was actually writing a paper on the issue of the age of the earth controversy for the 2001 uh, National Evangelical Theological Society, and uh, I was had just been diagnosed, and I was very, very sick from all the treatments, even when I read that paper that year, and the response to that paper, which I document in this book, uh, went a long way, actually, to my uh, getting interested in the subject, researching it for years, and eventually writing the book. You know, I'd like to say something very briefly about the thing that you said about suffering and such, that uh, you might be surprised that before I ever came across apologetics, I mean, I was raised Christian, never really doubted, found Christianity easy to come across and believe, but uh, it was when I was in high school I started having depression and panic attacks and anxiety and everything else based on circumstances, and I eventually still went to Bible college when I got out of high school girls, the only thing I really knew was the Bible, and that was where I found out about apologetics, and that, I say, is what cured my depression and anxiety so much. Mm. And I some say, that thing was the worst experience ever in my life, and 
that's keeping in mind I'd gone through major back surgery as a teenager too, and yeah, I was serious, like, yeah, the depression was worse. And I said, but it got me the best possible thing for me, which was apologetics. But now I no longer say that. Because mm -hmm. it was through apologetics I went for a while to Seven Evangelical Seminary and while there I was told by someone about a girl in need who, like me, has Asperger's and could bear to have some guy to talk to her and such. And how that turned out is, well, this month we're going to be celebrating seven years of marriage together. So that tells you a little bit about that. Congratulations. Yeah. Now, the other thing I'm thinking with your cancer survival also is, I'd like you all to remember that uh, when I'm hearing about how you overcame what was supposed to be terminal and such, I can't but think about my friend and someone a lot of us are praying for, Nabil Qureshi, right now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, yes. And I think your story can give us a lot of hope for him, too. Well, indeed, we should pray. And one thing that I'm quite aware of is that it's not because I'm a good person or anything like that. I'm very humble to know that not every person who prayed for me is still with us. In some cases, I've known people who were diagnosed with the same cancer who've gone on to be with the Lord. Mm -hmm. But I will say this. I think um, Christians have an amazing hope. And of course, the life to come with Jesus is what anchors us, but um, people should pray. They should trust the Lord. And, and um, so I'm a big proponent of prayer, um, and indeed, we should pray for our dear brother. And now, let's get into the book here. And you wrote about what led you to start writing on this topic. And I'm thinking, if you're going to be writing about the age of the earth in any capacity, in some sense, you must be a masochist of some kind, because mm -hmm. you're automatically, I think, entering yourself up to a world of suffering, no doubt. So so what got you willing to enter the lines then, as it were? Great question, because I think you're exactly right. Uh, to take on an issue this controversial in my own circles uh, is a bit of a death wish, it seems. Um, let me back up with a, a brief story that'll maybe help explain a little bit why I was interested in this. Before, uh, when I became a Christian in 1973, it may surprise readers or listeners to, who are unfamiliar with this issue that the majority of evangelical books and conservative fundamentalists, everybody at the time thought nothing about the age of the earth as the big deal. There was a, a great deal of discussion about the timing of the rapture, whether it was pre-tribulation or not, and that was extremely controversial. Mm. But the whole uh, modern young earth creationist movement was still in its infancy, and I thought nothing of it. I mean, uh, and I document this in the book, but um, I, it was so much a part of conservative evangelicalism at the time that I was a, an old earth creationist and yet an anti-evolutionist and never thought anything about it. It just was not that big a deal. And what, what changed was over time, I, in fact, I did become a young earth creationist for a season, a number of years, just like many, um, the, the young earth creationist movement um, led by the Institute of Creation Research and and Henry Morris, uh, who was uh, a hero for me. And, and my wife and I donated lots of money through the years to that organization, and I'm grateful for so many. Uh, 
contributions that uh, they made to my life. Uh, when I years later, when I was a teacher at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, I had Dwayne Gish of Institute for Creation Research come and speak to my classes. So that that was uh, not a big deal to me. What was a big deal was because I had read the writings of the anti-evolutionists of the previous hundred plus years, I knew that they were overwhelmingly older creationists. And suddenly, so many of my young earth brothers were referring to them as evolutionists. And that troubled me because I knew it wasn't so. They were sometimes referred to as liberals, as if they didn't believe the Bible. I knew that wasn't so. And so I began to be worried about the movement. It all kind of came together, however, in that 2001 that I mentioned, the year of my diagnosis, when I presented that paper, um, at the conclusion of the paper, my, my paper's uh, essential thesis was, this is not an issue, this is the wrong place uh, for Christians to divide, because both old and young earth creationists, old earth creationists were just that, creationists, and that my, I felt that this was uh, an important issue, but not one for which we should divide. And I was shocked when the next year, uh, a person who had just become a new friend, he introduced himself to me at that time, wrote a paper, and that is Terry Mortensen. Uh, Dr. Mortensen is a lead uh, scholar at Answers in Genesis, and he presented a paper the following year at um, ETS, which had my name in the title, basically. Um, challenging the notion of my paper the previous year. And, and I document this in the book as sort of a little interest, human interest uh, lead into one of the chapters. But I talk about how he alluded to the reasoning that old earth creationists held their view as if they were selling out to being afraid of, of the opinions of scientists and, and that they didn't love uh, the Bible and tremble at God's word, and that, and he he said that they were, and he used a kind of argumentation that said we were evolutionists, the very thing that had troubled me years earlier, mm. and that deeply concerned me. And maybe you could say it's because I'm from Texas and I'm an old redneck at heart. Whatever the reason is, even with cancer and feeling as bad as I did, I didn't like somebody calling me a liberal evolutionist who doesn't believe in the Bible. So mm-hmm. I started um, looking into the issue and ultimately years of meeting together, even in these annual private meetings with leaders of old earth and young earth, and eventually what they like to be called now evolutionary creationists, used to be uh, theistic evolutionists. All these private, and this also included intelligent design leaders, meeting together to discuss these sorts of issues. And um, once the effects of the chemo began to sort of ameliorate uh, several years ago, I was able to write the book. Yeah, I'm not sure if you remember it better. Shortly after I finished this book, I decided to do a little experiment on my Facebook page, which, yes, maybe I'm a masochist in some sense too, where I just asked each group, young of creationists, Old of creationists, theistic evolutionists, ask them, what would you do if you encountered irrefutable evidence from your position that the viewpoint you hold on creation was wrong? What would you do? You know, it's a good question to ask, and we could all think about. There, that 
post turned into such a firestorm so quickly, and I think like I mean I think a lot of my younger creations we've been told that they were like literalist and things of that sort and such, and then a lot of them would instead be looking at and saying. Yeah, you're siding with Satan, you're compromisers, you're calling God a liar, things of that sort. Just seeing back and think, this is unreal to me. And I'll go ahead and say my stance on creation is I am old earth, and my view of Genesis is that of John Walton, that I, I think his interpretation is the most sound one. But at the same time, my wife and my ministry partner are Young Earth Creationists. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be having my friend Hugh Ross back on the show, who, as we all know, is an older of Creationist. And I've had on the show before some people from Biologos talking about the, the book, How I Changed My Mind About Evolution. So I've had them on the show, and my stance with evolution is... I don't say yay or nay either way because I'm not a scientist. I tell Christians, if you want to argue against evolution, make it a scientific case. Let it fall because it's bad science and don't let it be the Bible versus science because you know which side the unbelievers are going to take in that instance. But I, I, I've just seen all this take place and I'm just watching it and think, really? Seriously? Yeah, um, I, Nick, I think I would say that one of the things that I hope to do with the book mm -hmm. is to hopefully get people to step back just a little bit from their entrenched positions mm -hmm. and to, to try to be thoughtful about where they draw the lines and how they treat each other. I'm right. convinced that Christians can treat one another with kindness, mm -hmm. even if we disagree in some of the strongest of ways that may lead to our not even being able to do, say, missions or local church together or the same denomination, we don't have to be ugly about it. We can state our positions very forcefully. And I'll say this, I've noticed that people can be snarky and unkind no matter what their, their viewpoint on this. And I'm happy to say that the majority and this will surprise a lot of people, but the majority of young earth creationists are not snarky about it, which I'm happy because I think, as I point out in the book, if some of the leadership in young earth circles who have very powerful ministries, um, if, if they may have won people over and convinced people to the young earth view, that really doesn't bother me so much. Right. But what I'm happy about is they've not been nearly as successful in some of these cases to inculcating an attitude that this is the hill to die on. And if a person is not a young earth creationist, that, that they are literally in some cases uh, referred to as a you know, believing in doctrines of Satan yeah. and undermining the gospel and so on. So, so I think it's important to point out at least in the terms of, of this book, uh, we have no interest in trying to make the case that a person's view of the age of the earth, uh, we're trying to convince them one way or the other. That's precisely what we're not doing. There are a lot of books out there that are all about that, and that we, we have nothing to add to that. That's, that's not the purpose of the book. So 
In short, if I could put it this way, in contrast to your view, you and I are very similar, actually, mm -hmm. in so much of what you stated. But I, I think what we are trying to say in this book is that the age of the earth is a very long-standing, legitimate debate, but not one that should divide Christians. The concerns about approaches to the Bible and liberal theology, and even some of the approaches to evolution, and evolution, I might add, is a loaded word because we need to define what is that, what do we mean when we say it. For right. instance, I'm sure one of the things we'll talk about that we carefully look at in the book, it was actually young earth creationists in its modern form that exposed me to accepting and consideration of speciation isn't, is a possibility and that just the species that we see in the world today are not what God created at creation. To put it differently, um, as an old earth creationist, and most were this way, there was this uh, rejection of any speciation. And yet, it's modern young earth creationism, much to the surprise of, um, of many, including, I would suspect, folks today, would be unaware that it's actually um, kind of built in to some versions of very popular young earth creationism today to believe in widespread uh, speciation. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later. So here's my point. I think that a bigger concern rather than the age of the earth should be thinking about just what do we mean by evolution? So for instance, um, some people, if they say that there, there was never an Adam and Eve as the father of the hum, human race, then I think this is a legitimate concern theologically to discuss. Mm -hmm. It is for me. Um, another issue that's longstanding is the issue of whether or not God can be known through what has been created in a kind of design or teleological way. Mm -hmm. And, um, Long-standing in apologetics, of course, that's a big deal, and this is one of the debates that goes on between a number of my friends in Biologos and friends, uh, say, for instance, in the intelligent design community. So, and then especially one of the things we'll want to talk about are the differing approaches to actually understanding the inspiration and authority of the Bible itself. That's pretty evident in the in these three different groups. So. But I guess I'll conclude this little uh, section by saying, Nick, I think that the issues are so complex. They're theological, they're scientific, of course, they're biblical. They're also philosophical, they're historical claims made. And the bottom line is people are forced to essentially place their trust in a ministry or a... Uh, a, a central figure that they trust who probably does not have specialty expertise in all of those areas. Who could? So, so now we have, in this modern era, you alluded to internet and all these things. It's not just that there are all sorts of people and all sorts of voices uh, trying to get our attention and our allegiance to their viewpoint, but we now have multi-million dollar ministries Every single year, as I document in the book, over $30 million just in 2014 in ministry donations to Answers in Genesis, $7 million or so to Reasons to Believe that year, 
and several million to buy Lagos, the new, the newest uh, kid on the block in this whole debate. And these ministries, and I'm not saying they shouldn't have a ministry right. to talk about these things, but they are throwing all of our way very complex issues that the average person hearing has very little ability to sort through. And what we try to do in this book is we try to give an overview of those very things that I've mentioned so that they can kind of understand and at least uh, take a look at these things and maybe have a little better idea um, how to go about sorting it out, where to draw lines, and, mm -hmm. and how to act toward others maybe with which you disagree. And in the end, our conclusion is have confidence in God and in your Bible, even if you don't know how to answer some of these questions. The history of science theology conflict shows that it's okay to, to say, you know what, I'm not really sure. What I know is God is true. I trust his word. And uh, I don't have to just because everybody's telling me I have to make a decision about mm -hmm. X. I don't have to make a decision about that right now if I don't yeah. really know. You know, I, I'm thinking that when I went to seminary, I got introduced to the arguments of Thomas Aquinas, and that really changed my theology in many ways, and my apologetic arguments became the Thomistic arguments. And writing a paper about the relationship between Christianity and science for a class once, it occurred to me that, you know, if you use the Thomistic arguments, you bypass science pretty much entirely, and science can't change the domestic arguments. And I don't have to know the scientific facts, which is great because I'm not a scientist. I just have to study the philosophy some, and that was wonderful. And then that got me thinking, well, what about evolution? Have I been maybe looking at this the wrong way? And then John Walton's book came out, and that said, wait, maybe I don't... I, I thought for a while that maybe Genesis shouldn't be read as a scientific account, and now this makes sense to me. And to me, it's been incredibly liberating because I don't have to marry my Christianity to whatever the science is at the time, which I think is a very dangerous position regardless. I've told people, look, if I woke up tomorrow and I saw a headline in, on a newspaper, and assuming these headlines are true headlines, and said something like, Southern Baptist Convention admits that, yes, evolution, macroevolution is a fact. I would say, cool, and move on with my day. If I woke up and I instead saw National Academy of Science that says, okay, seriously, it's time to abandon evolution, it's junk science, I'd say, cool, and I'd go on with my day. Nothing would really change for me. I think I, I understand what you're saying. I think I would put it this way. Mm -hmm. um, the, the deep confidence that I have in Christ and in his word is such that I'm not worried that it's going to get torn apart because of a headline. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it would certainly be disruptive to me if I heard some big claim that I thought ran against what I thought was true. And especially if I thought, oh, the Bible teaches this, um, then I think that would be, you know, that would be a, it would create cognitive dissonance for me and I'd have to work through it, but it wouldn't unsettle that deep conviction I have in Christ. And I think the interesting thing that I discovered in working through the science, or, or excuse me, the history of science theology conflicts is that there actually is an historic logic or rationale for the way in which Christians have worked through 
these sorts of conflicts over time. And, and to me, that was one of the biggest discoveries I read. I discovered in reading the literature over the last several hundred years, and I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get there, but I call it uh, the conservatism principle and the way over time Christians looking at these things, actually conservative Christians, actually, even if they say they are not following this approach, actually do follow this approach. And to me, that was intriguing. So uh, we'll save that, I suppose, till we get to there. You know, something that I think could surprise a lot of listeners, especially if there are skeptics listening to this show right now, is that we've grown up so much with this idea that science and religion have been at this constant war. And that's really not true, is it? It's not. In the first chapter, I document that one of the biggest battles that uh, historians of science have waged in the last uh, quarter century or so is to try to dispel this this warfare thesis. It's sometimes called a military uh, metaphor, conflict thesis, or simply the Draper White thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it came about in uh, the latter part of the 1800s. John William Draper, Andrew Dixon White were the two most famous people who put this forth in a couple of books they wrote, where they argued that um, religion, and in particular Christianity, had been a major detriment to the advancement of modern science. And the fact of the matter is, as all these um, historians of science will now tell you, it's simply not true. The fact of the matter is, as uh, I point out in the book, only two genuinely major science theology conflicts have taken place. One was the Copernican. The most famous incident was the Galileo affair, as I'm sure we'll talk about and most people are aware of. And the other one's the Darwinian debate. The Copernican one was was settled. It took the better part of 200 years and thinking through it but it was a genuinely major conflict because at the time it appeared that over a millennium and a half of science and theology, the understanding of what the Bible taught, it seemed, and then uh, common sense told them that it's that the earth certainly cannot move and that it is everything else orbiting the earth. Today, Darwinism as the second major controversy is a little bit different as we detail in the book because of the worldview issues that were associated both with Darwin and many of his followers, and also associated with some of the implications of Darwinism today and the way theology interacted with it. And so that is a a controversy that has skirmishes over certain issues in Darwinism, and nonetheless, it's still with us, but both of those controversies affected all of Christianity, everybody that claimed to be a Christian, and they lasted much longer than just a generation. The age of the earth controversy, on the other hand, is largely considered to be the uh, result of the modern young earth creation uh, revival and movement that was inaugurated in the 1961 publication of Wickham and Morris's uh, The Genesis Flood. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so the the long and short of an answer to your question is, it's it's really silly. It's a myth to say that 
that Christianity, or I like to call it theology-science conflict, because both science and theology seek to be uh, interpreting the data given to them. So, for instance, in biblical theology, we, we look at the Bible and we try to understand and systematically put together an understanding of what it's teaching. The same is true in science, and both both have adjusted and, and made changes over the years. And uh, science and theology are, um, the fact of the matter is, historically, Christian theologians were often the very ones who were, very, who were at the heart of working in science. And indeed, um, it is often considered to be one of the major factors that gave rise to modern science. If someone wants to hear it a bit more, Matt, I'm going to recommend you go back to the archives. The very first few months of the show, we had James Hannum on our show talking about his book on the genesis of science. And it, it's largely about how uh, the Middle Ages gave birth to science. In fact, for all the claims about that time being the Dark Ages, the whole Galileo affair didn't take place in the so-called Dark Ages. It took place in the more Reformation period and such mm -hmm. church history. So, we, so uh, anyway, we, we have to talk about him a little bit. Galileo, I, I mean, this was obviously science wanted to make an advance forward and the church was holding it back, right? Yeah, that's what people would like. To, uh, would like to have us think in some cases. The truth of the matter is, as historians who are not necessarily Christians at all, but who know the actual history will say, uh, literally everybody involved would have considered themselves a Christian, a Bible believer, shared a biblical worldview, and so on. And that includes Galileo. And that included, of course, uh, the Protestants and the Catholics involved. And so it was an in-house church debate um, on the one hand. On one hand, it was a science with science debate about how should we understand theories in astronomy. Was Should we take the old Ptolemaic astronomy that was uh, over our, uh, 1,500 years old, as I said, and, and it was a debate between theologians. How should we understand the theology of the Bible, especially uh, chapters like Joshua 10 that speak of Joshua's long day, mm -hmm. and many other verses that at least seem to people reading them at the time to imply that the earth never moves, therefore it wouldn't be rotating on its axis, and that the sun is what rises and sets, for instance, and therefore it's the sun that orbits the earth. So, it had nothing to do with uh, science uh, being held back by theology. So, absolutely uh, a myth. Mm -hmm. So, what was the source of the conflict? Though? Why couldn't Galileo and the Pope just get along? Why couldn't people just say, well, oh, Galileo's made a case. Let's just accept it and move on. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about it is that the earliest... Uh, generation. There are several generations we can look at the conflict mm. over the new science that was uh, ushered in with the book of Copernicus on the revolutions of the celestial spheres. That book published in 1543 was a landmark book 
it's typically considered to be um, the 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 beginning of the of modern science. Interestingly enough, when it first came out, it was not considered controversial that much because uh, people were still trying to digest it. There certainly wasn't the big fallout that there would be in Galileo's day, and even. Uh, those first-generation Catholic leaders uh, were not so concerned uh, about it. But you have to remember, 1543, what's going on? It's the it's the Reformation, and um, interestingly enough, the people who kept alive Copernicanism in that first generation were Lutherans. Uh, Philip Melanchthon was. The one, uh, if your re- listeners will know that name, he is he was the uh, lieutenant, the theological lieutenant, if you will, to Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. And um, he led the revitalization and renovation of the European university system, particularly in Germany, but also elsewhere. It was very influential. And they greatly respected uh, Copernicus and his work, even though they didn't literally accept the idea that uh, the Earth orbits the Sun, they nonetheless did not consider it a heresy. It was widely taught, including by the very son-in-law of uh, Philip Melanchthon, Caspar Poika, who taught that that very Copernican astronomy at the University in Wittenberg, where the heart of the uh, Reformation took place. Now, interestingly enough, however, while people like Johannes Kepler, another Lutheran, were being nurtured in that environment, that Lutheran environment of, of looking at this early scientific teaching and trying to adapt it to their understanding of the Bible. That is, they were trying to adapt, this may sound strange, but you'll see this throughout the, I call it hybrid models. And it happens throughout the history of theology and science where you'll see uh, people wrestling with ideas and they will try once they become convinced that an idea uh, in science may have warrant and they'll try to fit it as best they understand to their understanding of the Bible without compromising their biblical beliefs. So while that's going on among the Lutherans um, and leading to Kepler actually Improving upon Copernicanism, he discovered the laws of planetary motions, and he was a full-blown Copernican. He didn't hold it in in an anti-realist fashion. He literally believed that the planets, including the Earth, orbited the sun. What was going on among Catholics was very different. This was the counter-Reformation period for Catholics. And so the Council of Trent, as a response to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, really stressed that the Bible was not to be interpreted just by anybody, but was in fact to be interpreted in light of the long tradition from the Greek and Latin fathers for over a millennium and uh, the magisterium, the, the, the Pope and the cardinals and so on. So by the time of Galileo, the Council of Trent was well in place, and Galileo comes on the scene as a Catholic, and he trains a telescope. One of the first uses of the telescope, he improved upon it, and he trained it on the heavens and um, discovers 
sunspots, which implied the sun is rotating, that the sun is moving on its axis as those sunspots moved. He detected four moons around uh, Jupiter. Suddenly it's clear that there are also heavenly bodies orbiting something other than the earth. But the real killer was that he discovered the phases of Venus, which imply, of course, that Venus uh, is um, not orbiting the earth, but that the earth and Venus uh, are in some sort of different relationship to the sun. And in fact, it implies that the, uh, that Venus is orbiting the sun. So um, he got in trouble and he was told not to, uh, to teach these things. And a few years later, a friend of his, that is of Galileo, a friend of his, Mafio Barberini, had been a cardinal and had actually been a big fan of Galileo's, had even written a poem about his great scientific prowess, uh, was elected the pope. And um, Galileo said, you know what, here's my chance. And he went to the pope and he said, is it possible that I could you know, can we get back to this subject of Copernicanism and maybe begin teaching it again? And by this time, Barberini was Pope Urban VIII now, said to him, well, isn't it possible, and this is uh, one of the more famous discussions in all of the history of science theology conflict, the Pope said, could not God have arranged the heavens completely differently yet have the same phenomena that we see. In other words, isn't it possible, Galileo, that it looks like what you think, that, that the earth orbits the sun, but isn't it possible things could look that way, but it's really not that way? And, and here's a literal quote from the Pope. And if this possibility exists, which might still preserve in their literal truth, the sayings of scripture, it is not for us mortals to try to force those holy words uh, to mean what to us from here may appear to be the situation, end quote. In other words, the Pope was holding a position that sought to hold together his confidence in the Bible, but not denying that to a scientist like Galileo, this is the way it looked. Galileo got permission so long as he, to write a new book which became one of the most intriguing books in all of modern science, Dialogue on the chief, the Two Chief World Systems. Mm-hmm. And he, was, he included in this book, it's, it's in the, dialogue, the Platonic dialogue form. So you have, you have a modern astronomer, a Copernican-style astronomer, debating or dialoguing with a Ptolemaic astronomer, the old astronomy, and you have a layman, an educated layman, sort of listening back and forth, trying to draw uh, an opinion from this. And it's clear that the modern astronomer is winning the day. Galileo produced it this way. But he had promised the Pope that if he published this book, he wouldn't be arguing against the, what they considered to be the literal truth of the Bible in this case, um, that the earth is uh, that the earth is stationary and the sun orbits it, what we call geocentrism, um, but that he could argue about Copernicanism as a kind of instrumental uh, or an instrumentalist way, that, that it's a useful sort of fiction for, for, for scientists, but that 
he would utilize the Pope's idea that you could say something like, things may look the way Copernicanism teaches, but God, because he's miraculous and in his power, could still have what we understand from the Bible, that is, the geocentric interpretation is still literally true. Unfortunately, though Galileo kept his word and put that into this uh, great read, Dialogue on the two, two Chief World Systems, he put it in the mouth of the, the old-fashioned astronomer, and he named him Simplicio, which carried the um, connotation of simpleton, and it was an insult, and the, the Pope was outraged, and that's what led to the famous, what's typically called the Galileo Affair, in which Galileo was put on trial, a plea deal was reached where he would say, I really didn't realize that I was making it look like uh, the modern astronomy is true. I recant it. They had an actual plea deal struck, but when it was put before the Pope and the Cardinals, they literally gave uh, the verdict that um, Galileo was vehemently suspected of heresy, the next to the most serious. Uh, charge they could actually render, and they put him under house arrest um, for the rest of his life, for which he was very bitter. And one more thing about this, Nick, I'll say, God in his providence, what's most interesting about this, in his house arrest, Galileo, because he could no longer work on this astronomy issue, he wrote his wrote up his ideas he had been developing for decades on physics, what came to be called Discourses on Two New Sciences. And that book actually laid the foundation for none other than Isaac Newton's in the next generation, famous Principia, which often you'll hear the phrase united earth and heaven or earth and sky, because it showed that the that the actual laws of motion on earth explain the laws of planetary motion. And suddenly the whole Copernican issue so, no longer seemed to be a big deal. And it began to fade overnight, much like the old rapture controversy in the generation um, the, in which I became a Christian. So much more could be said about that, but let's, uh, in order to get everything, as I say, what principles, the princi what are the principles that you get out of the Galileo affair on the relationship between Christianity and science, and how do you carry them over today? Okay, this is what I thought was a really incredibly important historical insight from this, uh, ma this first of the two major controversies, and I call it the theological conservatism principle. The conservatism principle in uh, business or finance is the idea that when you create a balance sheet or a financial statement that you overstate any liabilities that you have or expenses, but you always understate any assets. You don't report assets that you don't have in hand yet so that you have a conservative, uh, trustworthy document. Now, what I'm saying is that in light of uh, the way Christians responded, over, the over time, you can see several generations, and I document this in the book, they develop different attitudes, and I liken this to kind of wedding terms. In the first generation, when Christians see 
a scientific theory um, that appears to be um, impossible in their minds to um, make sense of in light of their understanding of the Bible, they would hold the what I call the two the two can never wed mm-hmm. uh, approach. But over time, if there g- begins to be a kind of a longevity to the theory, and there are parts of the theory that seem to be more and more uh, accepted and even acceptable biblically, there develops what I call the two can court. They're not going to get married, but they're going to see if it's possible there's anything here that could could get together long term. And here's where you generally see what I call those hybrid models, of which uh, I will I was fascinated to note that right up to the present day, you'll see this among Christians struggling with these issues. They will hybridize various aspects. They will mix and match little pieces of theological and scientific theories and take part of one and toss out this other part and see if they can come up with something. And this is when you often see the most controversies because things are not settled. The third period is when largely the Christian community is convinced that whatever had been considered troublesome before is no longer troublesome. And so I call this the two, that is science theology, can wed on these terms. Now, this is the part that I found fascinating. I call the terms of this wedding Galileo's proposal. He wrote two two letters in which he laid out his ideas on this, letters uh, to Castelli, uh, a theologian, and another to the Grand Duchess Christina. And in these letters, he lays out what what are two assumptions and two steps. If science and theology, there's two assumptions. Galileo argued on the first assumption that the Bible is without error. He says, we all accept that the Bible is God's word and therefore it cannot err. But then he had a second assumption, neither can the Bible be in conflict with any fact of nature. If there is something that's literally true in the creation, then it will not be in conflict with the truth of the Bible. He said, I will not argue, however, that interpretations of the Bible are inerrant. So it's possible we could have an error interpretation. Those are the two assumptions. With that in mind, Galileo argued that if you see a science and theology conflict in the making, your first methodological step, based on your assumptions, is if the science that seems to be in conflict with the Bible is not proven or demonstrated would be the words that he would have used. And here's where the devil's in the detail. This is always the hardest part of this. But if it's proven, Galileo argued it, it, because of your assumptions, it shows that you've misinterpreted the Bible. It isn't the Bible's fault that you've misinterpreted it because you know that it's true and that there can't be a conflict with a truth in nature or or in the, the creation. So if the science is proven, then you reinterpret the Bible. But if the science isn't proven, if the science is not proven, the Bible, the traditional Bible interpretation should be retained. This was what I call the Galileo proposal. And Nick, what I was fascinated to see is that 
conservative Christians, and this isn't the case with every group today, and one of my complaints about my brothers at uh, my brethren, I say brothers in the sense of inclusive gender here, at Biologos, um, don't always adhere to this principle, but the principle is uniformly practiced throughout the last several centuries by Bible-believing Christians, but it doesn't mean that it's easy to practice or even that people recognize that's what they're doing when they do it. But the Mm -hmm. book will give examples over and over and over, including my young earth and my old earth friends, and even biologos people will do this as well. We'll do the hybridization part, I should say, but the actual conservatism principle is widely practiced in both old earth and young earth communities, especially. You know, I think that's something very important, especially for listeners of this show, because if you're listening to a show and you're Christian, no doubt you have a great interest in Christian apologetics. And I think one of the biggest mistakes we can often make in the field is thinking, we have to be a master of everything. We have to answer every question, sir. We have to know science. We have to know the Bible. We have to know other religions. We have to know ethics. We have to know X, Y, Z, and such. And anyone will overextend themselves in that, and they will become a jack of all trades and master of none, and they can easily be knocked out by someone who comes and is mm-hmm. a great expert in the field. So, in, that's why I say, if you're not an expert in science, don't debate science. Feel free to call in someone else who is, and mm. don't marry your Bible reading to the science of the day. I mean, Chesterton's saying long ago, he who marries the spirit of the age is destined to be a widow. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think you're wise in saying that. If why would we, why would we feel the need to argue for something we don't really know it? If we don't know it, I can't claim that I know it, and therefore, why should I claim I believe something I don't know? Mm-hmm. Now, I'll get to this later, but there are issues that I may not know all the details about, and I can uh, nonetheless have a a big firm conviction. So, in this case. Christians will have very strong convictions about what they believe the Bible teaches, say, for instance, on creation. But the truth be known, even in individual camps, uh, you will find great differences of opinion about how to apply all the details. halfway point of the show here. I can remind people you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We got Dr. Ted Cable on today talking about his book that he co-wrote, Controversy of the Ages, Why Christians Should Not Divide Over the Age of the Earth. But if you're listening next week, and I hope you are, we're going to have R. James Sawyer on. He's going to be talking about his book, his book, and I believe also from Weaver, Resurrecting the Trinity. What difference does it make that we are Trinitarians today? Why does the Trinity matter Christianity? So next week, we're going to be talking about the Trinity. For now, let's get back to Dr. K. Barton talking about this 
this book a controversy of the ages. Okay, so and we're having to move very quick because I don't want people to think we're getting the whole book in here. We're not. There's so much more in here. But now today, Copernicanism isn't this big heated debate. I, I'm sorry, but I cannot picture the last time I was on Facebook and saw Christians going back and forth and arguing about Copernicanism seriously. And they argue about it in comparison to the debate today, but not whether it's true or not. How did we get to the debate today? Well, um, it's a bit complex, but if I could make it simple, the age of the earth debate precedes Darwinism um, by well more than 50 years, as some would argue. It actually, um, the, uh, there had been debates about the extent of the flood, how should we understand uh, the, the formation of, of fossils, um, the issue of what caused fossils, and the age of the earth itself. And, and all of that is in the book, but it is a it is a difficult issue. I will say this. What's simple about the issue is that uh, the people during that time period were, for the most part, with some exceptions, were, were usually trying to fit their scheme, at least in part, to making it seem friendly to the Bible. And um, so you'll see some rather elaborate schemes as they were now thinking about the Earth as if it's a planet. Now, just uh, one of the planets, part of the creation. And so they're thinking about the interior of the earth, what's on the inside of the earth. And they're trying to figure out what to do with fossils. They're discovering uh, strange animals and plants that nobody had ever dreamed of. And what do we make of them? And all of that sort of thing is what eventually led to 200 years ago coalescing into what we call modern geology, in which most of the major players in English circles uh, tended to be Christians. Some of them, like William Buckland, were also theologians. And that is, a, the, that is when the famous gap theory and day-age theories both were uh, came into their own in popularity. They had been around even considerably longer than that, but there was this... Uh, uh, essentially no big deal sort of accepting that the earth is old and that it's not a problem for the Bible. And indeed, many of these people were uh, using it in their apologetics at the time. So um, here, here's where it gets a bit complex because during the rest of the 19th century, the issue would eventually become Darwinism in science and theology conflict. There was, again, there was just very little in the way of conflict over the issue of the age of the earth. But when Darwinism comes on the scene with the, with the publication of Origin of Species, there was a massive controversy, as virtually everybody knows, and it's still with us. And Christians who were anti-evolutionists, and that was the main term that was used. They didn't use the term creationists. That was usually reserved as a term in theology to describe a particular view of how the human soul is passed on from parents mm -hmm. um, or not to their offspring. And comparison so, to Traducianism, I think, right? That is exactly right. Traducianism being the view that parents actually 
pass along in some way the soul versus uh, God recreate or God creating the soul in the womb. Mm-hmm. So they were anti-evolutionists, and um, so whether it was Charles Hodge or Charles Spurgeon, whether it was the founders of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, whether it was the fundamentalists of a hundred years ago in their fight against liberalist theological liberalism and uh, evolution, whether it was the Scopes trial um, and William Jennings Bryan, these were old earth creationists. They were anti-evolutionists. There was no wedding whatsoever uh, between the two. There was this sense that um, there was no controversy over it. So the uh, Interesting thing about this was the loss of evangelical institutions a hundred years ago, particularly educational institutions, and in many cases, the loss of denominational structures, there did eventually come about a sort of reformulating of evangelicalism in the middle of the 20th century, as which we're most aware. Mm-hmm. But ironically, most of those people were still old earth creationists. At the same time that's going on, the Seventh-day Adventists had a most interesting sort of reaction to these issues. Ellen G. White, the prophetess of Seventh-day Adventism had a vision in which she believed God showed her the horrible evils not only of evolution, Darwinian evolution, but of the old earth view because it militated against Sabbatarianism or the idea that you had to have these, in her mind, you had to have these literal consecutive 24-hour creation days so that you could uphold uh, the teaching of Seventh-day Adventism. So, a hundred years ago, there was a follower, an Adventist follower, who named George McCready Price became a uh, an amateur geologist in an attempt to dismantle not only Darwinism but um, old Earth creationism in one fell stroke. And he wrote a book he called New Geology, in which uh, he believed he had discovered, he claimed he had discovered a principle that was being ignored by the whole world of science in which the scientific, uh, the strata in the earth, these layers that look like they're showing aged deposits of various animals, not only are in all kinds of different orders around the world. That is to say, what scientists were teaching about the geologic column was false in every way, and it undermined, and if this is true, would be the greatest discovery in modern science, or at least in modern geology, and it would undercut both Darwinism and the the old Earth view. And that view was passed along indirectly and eventually to Henry Morris, uh, the father of modern young earth creationism. I might mention this, Nick. Mm -hmm. Um, The followers of George McCready Price, um, Harold Clark, another Adventist, and Frank Lewis Marsh, both of these Adventists rejected the rejected that view by uh, George McCready Price that the that you cannot trust the um, the fossil column 
but in fact argued that it was trustworthy. They were still young earth creationists, however, and they adopted a view that especially in Marsh uh, came to be called today baromenology, a central teaching in young earth creationism, which would argue as a way to sort of adapt parts of Darwinist teaching, what we call speciation in limits, within limits, within the created kinds, so that you can get all the animals onto the ark without having to account for the incredible numbers of extinct species, having all of those land animals being on the ark. So all of those ideas fit into, and in fact, Henry Morris calls, as I document in the book, uh, he refers to um, George McCready Price as the greatest geologist of the 20th century and read his books and corresponded with him. And over and over and over again, you can see in his um, The Genesis Flood the ideas put in there, including that the fossil column is um, – is really a construct put together to support evolution, and it shouldn't be trusted. He argued that there's a kind of order there that does reveal a flood, a, a global flood, but not the kind of order that we should say, oh, it's clear that you have um, these uh, strata laid down uh, in such a way that you can date the earth and see these uh, evolutionary developments. So that's how we kind of get going. And eventually what, what I think is most interesting, Nick, having lived at the time when, um, the modern, uh, revolution in the age of the earth, the young earth creationist movement, uh, really gets hold is that for many of us, there was this, this feeling that, um, Wow, we have a help now, a really powerful scientific help in responding to all the atheistic evolutionary stuff that's going on. And when you looked at the Genesis flood and the teachings, particularly the pictures that seem to show uh, humans lived at the same times that dinosaurs did, mm -hmm. it was just incredibly exciting and it seemed to be a new friend to help fight evolution and of course it's uh, developed over time as i started our our uh, talk together it's over time developed also into a fight over the age of the earth when you were talking about price as an amateur geologist and i also can have to think about i argue against jesus mythicists for instance a lot and you hear people like Gerald Massey, who would have been seen as an amateur Egyptologist, and all these other people who think they're amateur historians, arguing this. It is the case that Price was an amateur geologist, but the professional geologists just weren't really paying attention to him. Well, that's what that's what Henry Morris argued. Henry Morris argued that yes, he wasn't trained in the same way, but. Morris argued that actually made him a far more effective, honest scientist because he wasn't brainwashed. Mm -hmm. And yet his own followers, and in fact, as I document in the book, uh, the majority teaching now at places like Answers in Genesis no longer accepts that notion that the, the geologic column, for instance, 
is um, a bogus construct just put out there to, you know, kind of a conspiracy theory sort of idea that they're just twisting all of this to fit a fit an idea. Mm. So uh, even in Adventist circles, uh, even in young earth circles, um, that sort of central idea in McCready Price is no longer held. What is held that came through loud and clear in Morris and is all is very much present in some of these leading young earth creationist uh, ministries is an attitude that if you don't hold to the young earth view, then you are in league with Satan. Literally, these were the kinds of things that mm-hmm. McCready Price uh, would say. He held that he he actually brought uh, Harold Clark up on charges for heresy, um, for certain geological views that he felt um, were satanic in rejecting his ideas about the flood column and so on. So um, there is, uh, there's no doubt that you wouldn't find very many people today, although there is a movement in one sector of young earth creationism today that still holds to that early idea that you see in in uh, Henry Morris and coming from Price that that's things like the flood column and plate tectonics and these sorts of things are not trustworthy. They're just constructs designed to fit, uh, you know, an anti-Bible uh, teaching. Yeah, I have to say, unfortunately, that uh, when I did start that thread on Facebook, I alluded to earlier, but yes, before too long, there were a number of YECs showing up and saying that we were uh, following Satan, that we call God a liar, and everything else like that. So sadly, that's still going on today. In some circles it is. I document in the book, one of the things that I tried very hard was to make sure that I used the words of the people in these ministries themselves. So I have extensive citations and quotations so that I'm not just putting words in to the mouths of people. And and it is true that literally there is this idea in, on the part of some uh, in these major young earth ministries to claim that any that if you, even more so than evolution, the age of the earth itself, well, let me just read. Uh, Ken Ham uh, wrote this, bottom line, evolution is really not the problem as much as the age of the earth. Millions of years is the problem in today's world that has resulted in a loss of biblical authority uh, in the church and culture and so on. He says, I personally believe that belief in millions of years is the lie of Satan in this present world that is used as one of the greatest attacks on God's word. And he says, it's no different than the Israelites who adopted the idols of the pagan cultures and worship pagan gods often mixed up. In with what God's word instructed them. So if this were really true, by the way, uh, Nick, if I really believed it was true, what, what Ken Ham says, then as I'm going to argue later in the book, I would, I would, uh, I would recant my, uh, book. I would recant what I, uh, what I'm saying to you, mm-hmm. but I would also say if it's not true, then Ken Ham uh, is doing the church a huge disservice in referring to others as um, 
as promoting a lie of Satan, the biggest lie, as he calls it, uh, one of the greatest attacks on God's world of Satan today. And in fact, I would argue, as I point out in this book, that he puts enormous stress on his followers for if they really accept not just that the earth is young, but if they accept that to not believe the earth is young is to follow a satanic lie. And as I document so many other places in the book where they claim it undermines the gospel and has led to the human sexual revolution and so many other things. If that were literally true, then I believe that those Christians who hold to an old earth view should be disfellowshipped. And in fact, this is what creates stress is because the words and that kind of language seems to imply that this is this is a hill to die on Mm -hmm. but there's not this clear teaching that yes we should divide that's the that's the bottom line of the book are you saying we should divide over this issue or not and it's very troubling if you are going to say these very strong things um then in fact serious christians will feel that they have to respond in a faithful way And it almost led to the dissolution of the very conservative denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, Mm -hmm. where they had a major controversy over this. And there's, you know, they're still in the recovery of trying to sort it out. It's, It's a very difficult thing once you take seriously, not just that it's a view to hold. Oh, I'm a young earth. Oh, I'm an old earth. But the view that this is the hill on which we need to die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember think that uh, I've been told that uh, there are two beliefs in Christianity that really lead to vast apostasy. One of them I hold to, one I don't hold to. Young of creationism is one of them. Inerrancy is a second one. Because when you make both of these absolutely censure, then when a young person goes off to college, they get presented evidence that the earth is old or that evolution is true. I think, well, if that's the case, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And then if they go off and get presented with 101 Bible contradictions, and think, if absolutely one of them is true, then nothing is true in the Bible, they think, oh, well, I guess Jesus didn't rise from the dead because, look, there's a contradiction. And I mean, that's why I think it's so important we don't make secondary issues primary ones that... You know, if you base your Christianity on something other than Jesus rising from the dead, you've got on the wrong focus. I would I would uh, respectfully differ with you a bit on this one, as I have a chapter in this book. Chapter eight deals with the issue of biblical inerrancy in the age of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think biblical inerrancy is a critical issue, and since this isn't the focus of our talk, I don't want to. Yeah. Uh, you know, go go astray here and and make it seem like I'm in a big debate with you. But I I think biblical inerrancy is an important issue, and I think that there's a uh, there's an epistemological reason for it. That isn't to say, however, that a that I would say that a person I wouldn't claim that a person who uh, differs with me on the issue of biblical inerrancy. So, for instance, the great F. F. Bruce who didn't like the notion of biblical inerrancy was somehow this massive tool in the hands of Satan or something like that. I wouldn't say that, but I do think it's an important issue. Mm -hmm. I do have a chapter in the book 
chapter nine called Theological Triage, where I mm-hmm. uh, talk about the very difficult issue of drawing doctrinal boundaries. Al Mohler has come up with this notion of theological triage in which he describes uh, primary, secondary, and tertiary issues. And it works like this. Primary issues are those issues without which you no longer have Christianity. Secondary issues are those which you can be a Christian and differ on, but your differences are such that you may not be able to work together, let's say, in denominational or movement type ways or in local churches or, uh, you know, maybe a seminary or whatever. And we don't like it, but it's a fact of the history of Christianity and a difficult one. The third one is tertiary issues, which really are not worthy of, Christians can debate, but are not worthy of even dividing even at a local church level. Now, the logic of the triage thinking is easier to conceptualize than it is to put in practice. There are certain big issues, for instance, that are primary. Nobody should doubt. If they doubt, then they're very revisionist, let's say the Trinity or Mm. the deity of Christ. And there are certain tertiary issues that most Christians would understand are genuinely tertiary. Um, but, But when we get at the second level, that second ones where we could say, yes, you're a Christian, but we, you know, that's, your view is pretty, pretty tough here. I don't see how we can, if, if you think that you, um, let's just say a classic example, if you hold that um, in infant baptism, um, and, and I believe in believer's baptism, say by immersion or something, uh, yes, there may be some churches around that'll do it both ways, but historically that's been a difficulty uh, considered to be one that makes it hard to do local church and so on. Um, this is where it's tough is because sometimes people will uh, differ over what is a secondary issue. And if you make a secondary issue um, into a primary issue uh, wrongly, then you're dividing the church unnecessarily, you're making it even harder to get along than it need be, If especially it is if you're taking a tertiary issue and making it seem like it's a secondary or primary. On the other hand, if you were to take a primary issue and you were to act as if it's not important, then you actually are failing to warn and protect the church adequately. So I respect, and I think you would agree here, Yeah. Uh, I respect that believers can differ on this issue and that we we don't want to say anything goes and we may have difficulty dividing the lines, but um, they nonetheless will happen. We're, we do all, we all divide, or we don't even like to say it that way, but we draw lines, but we can be kind about it and reflect the, the character of Christ in the way that we do it.
Black and mind everyone right now, you're listening to Medieval Wars Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, <clears throat> we got Dr. Ted Cabar on, talking about his book, Controversy of the Ages, Why Christians Should Not Divide Over the Age of the Earth, and everything we do here, friends, it's listener-supported. I don't pay my guests to come on, I can't pay them, they come on free of charge, they give their time, and for some scholars busy in the field, two hours at a time can be a whole lot, but they do it for your benefit. And people don't come on here to teach me. I don't have the show just so I can get my personal education, even though that's a nice side benefit of it. I do this because I want you all to be equipped as well. So if you're interested in taking part in this ministry, please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. In fact, I'm there right now. There is a link on the side that says, Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, you click the uh, section in there, and it takes you to a ministry of Risen Jesus, that of Mike Lacona. No, my website is not malfunctioning. You have gone to the right place. As I, I said earlier, I've been married for nearly seven years, and my wife is actually Mike's daughter. So, he and his wife help us with all this, so that we can get the tax deductions and everything, making it easier on you. So, you make that donation to us through Risen Jesus. Now, it's very important that after you do that, you go and contact Mike or Debbie or Allie or myself and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And if you contact myself or Allie, we'll get in touch with Mike and Debbie and say, Hey, uh, so-and-so just said they made a donation, they want to go to us. And we'll say, okay. And we will get that donation, tax deductible, we get everything from it. And uh, you can also support us through Amazon, buying ebooks that I have written or co-written, written, for instance, our, a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian, co-written, where one related just we were talking about just now, defining inerrancy, my look at what inerrancy is, why it's important, uh, groundless, God and natural disasters, Christian answers to this generation's questions and such, and then finally, jewelry. Yeah, guys, you can buy jewelry for the lady in your life. I, I'm not sure how many of you all have noticed this, but usually women do like jewelry. So, uh, we've got a jewelry store from Premier Jewel, my friend Lena Clesteronte, if you want some more details on it and such, let me know. But the deal is that whatever you buy for that lady in your life, 25% of that purchase goes towards deeper waters, no matter what it is. So, guys, and this is a great opportunity for you to impress that lady in your life. And like I say, you can buy something for her to make up for that recent screw-up that I know you did. Or, you can buy something for her to make up for that screw-up that I know you are going to make in the future. Now, Dr. Cable, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to? Well, you kindly pointed out to me that you were going to ask this question. Mm -hmm. um, I um, actually have a, an ongoing burden for the persecuted church around the world, and there are a number of good organizations that uh, seek to minister to brothers and sisters living in persecuted countries. And uh, my personal favorite I've supported for many years is called Open Doors. They're online. They're not hard to find. Most people are familiar with 
And if they're not, they should be. The modern a Christian classic book, God Smuggler, written by a man named Brother Andrew, a Dutchman who started this ministry. So I love Open Doors. Uh, Open Doors USA for your USA listeners would be a, a good portal uh, to, to check it out. And by the way, I might just mention the issues that we're talking about here, I like to think about them in terms of what it would be like if I were in a country where they don't have all of the resources that we do here to be thinking about what issues are most critical and where should we draw lines and 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 those sorts of things. And I, I think I can learn a lot from at least biblically informed brothers and sisters living in some of these places where the sheer difficulty of living their faith there helps them see maybe a little more clearly sometimes than I, um, you know, the, the supremacy of Jesus and, and how to think about those things that are taught in the Word. So, thank you for asking me. And I just did a web search. Usually I do this whenever I can for Open Doors here. And what you want to do is go to opendoors.org. And apparently, if you live in other places, there's Open Doors Canada, opendoorsca.org, and opendoorsuk.org. So wherever you are, you can try and track something down. Okay. Yep. Now, Dr. K. Bart, let's try and be as fair as we can, because we've said a whole lot about the Young of Creationist movement, which I, I'm not one of them, but at the same time, does that mean that the older of Creationist movement and the... Uh, theistic evolutionist movement is without sin in all of it. Mm. It's a great point. One of the things that a leading young earth creationist, I'll not name him, um, but he told me after I contacted him, he said, your book will, um, he said, the controversy surrounding this book would make it dangerous for me to be known for having any sort of attachment to your book. But he said, in his view, that the book was going to benefit Hugh Ross or these old earth organizations. Now, in fairness, let me respond and say I have some criticisms of reasons to believe in Hugh Ross. Mm -hmm. I, consider, I consider people in all of these groups. Uh, friends, those that mm -hmm. I've got to know and, and love, I consider them brothers and sisters in Christ, and and certainly that's true of Hugh Ross. I do have a criticism in the book of a model that I think uh, Hugh should should abandon, which is for years he's argued for a test. At first, he wanted a council of Christians to come together and to sort of uh, work together like like councils of old and um, put an end to this age of the earth uh, battle. Uh, he has uh, borne the brunt of a lot of attacks of the years, uh, many of which I think are, are terribly unfair and things that have been said about him. It's one thing to differ with him. It's another to refer to him as an evolutionist when uh, his own model doesn't hold to any evolution. But nonetheless, I am critical of that change where he eventually moved from the, the council idea to wanting to uh, put in place a test. Let's make a scientific test here that kind settle this once for all and uh, he, you know sort of maybe banish the young earthers from from doing this. And, and I think he would say he, he hoped it would sort of put an end to some of the evolutionist models and, and such too. Now my own view based upon what I learned in 
studying the history of science theology conflicts is that it's unfair to say to Christians who really have a genuine uh, conviction that they should uh, just drop what it is they believe based upon something that you set up as a marker to, to, uh, that should settle it for them. Uh, in the end, Christians hold to biblical convictions, and I just not, I don't think that's a good idea. I think it's also fair to say that there are plenty of difficulties to go around. Every single one of these ministries, including Young Earth, excuse me, well, they're certainly them, but including Old Earth and evolutionary creationists, which is the term my theistic evolutionist friends prefer now, have their difficulties. That is to say, they struggle, there are issues in theology or issues in science that don't seem to be meshing well. So, for instance, old earth creationists often will act as if the notion of animal death before the fall of Adam really shouldn't be considered to be a big deal. And that you know, it it somehow should will even ridicule young earthers sometimes for asking the question. Now, I, I don't think it's a deal killer personally, or I would I wouldn't hold to a non-dogmatic old earth view. But I do think uh, old earthers should respect the question more. That's just one example. I think I could give many for every single one of these these uh, ministries. I will say this, and let me let me be clear that I do love people that I've come to know uh, personally as brothers and sisters in Christ in Balagos. Uh, I think that I've met some, some very fine, warm-hearted fellow evangelicals there. I don't want that to have any footnotes to it. That's just a fact. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, however, that we can't have a serious disagreement. And my biggest disagreement with Balagos uh, by far is the what I consider violation of the conservatism principle, and it, and it works like this. It isn't that Biologos doesn't allow you to say, for instance, hold to biblical inerrancy and be an evolutionary creationist. They will say clearly on their website that they don't have an official view on the inerrancy of scripture. But what they do have that I consider dangerous are articles that are very disturbing on pointing out what they call dark texts of the Bible and so on by people like Kenton Sparks is probably the most famous article on their website. And I talk about this in the book and and they've known this for years and they've retained, they've kept the article on their website and it's called After Inerrancy and it alludes it says uh, inerrancy is a disaster. We know the Bible's full of mistakes. When you read the Bible, you should read the Bible with an openness to, to look for those mistakes, including moral, theological, not just other kinds of errors, like whether some science error or something. And if that view were, were held, it's virtually indistinguishable uh, from classic liberalism. And I guess I could summarize it this way, Nick. The feeling that I that I have, and I realize this is a very, uh, I try not to be, I don't say this quite this way in the book because it's not a very scholarly way to say this, but to be candid, um, the feeling I have is that Balagos is very clear. This is this is made clear in there in over and over again that evolution and whatever evolution means, it is a 
full-blown neo-Darwinist view that it that leads to some radical views, like for instance, there is never was uh, Adam and Eve were never the literal parents of the whole human race, for instance, or that morality arises through Darwinian mechanisms. I could go on and on and on. There are very deep concerns, even just on that that count. But my concern is that whatever it seems majority science is saying, they violate the conservatism principle and are willing, they don't go through this. It seems like the message is evolution is true and we'll figure out how the theology fits down the road. And if they may want to characterize that as an as unfair, and I'm willing to hear and listen and have that dialogue. But my concern is that it's a movement that has risen very quickly. It's only been around about 10 years. It has a powerful, very attractive message to especially younger people uh, uh, who, as we've said, on all, all of these ministries, people do not have the ability to sort out all of the complex issues. But when you have books that are like you know, how I changed my mind about evolution. And they're really like testimonials, mm-hmm. very powerful testimonials. Um, people catch a view and move toward a view rather than they've worked through it and they know how to sort it all out. And my concern is that unlike in the history of science theology conflicts with conservative Bible Christians, in this case, I see what they have on offer. It isn't that they have no views that are more conservative, are are wrestling with the issues in a more conservative way. It's that they entertain more radical views that can clearly be called more akin to liberalism, theological liberalism, Mm -hmm. as in the case of the Kenton Sparks article. And I worry that when you say to the church and you go straight to practicing Christians in their churches, see there, uh, what this means is you no longer have to worry about evolution. What I want to say is, what are you saying about the history of Christian theology, and especially in this case, what are you saying about the very Bible that grounds our our biblical conviction? So, um, you know, this is in a nutshell. These are complex issues. It's painful to say these things when we have a difference with others, but they they must be said. Yeah, you know, I, I could agree with that. I mean, I've had I have the editors of the book, how I changed my mind about evolution, my show because. I mean, I do want to show people that, you know what, just because a Christian says they believe in evolution, it doesn't mean they've sold their souls to the devil and such, <clears throat> and allow for more openness and say, hey, let's just examine the scientific evidence and see where it goes. And at the same time, you know, Q Ross, he's a friend of mine. I, you know, one of the things my wife and I like about him is he has Asperger's just like we do, so there's that connection. And at the same time, I would agree with what you've said, though, that, uh, you can't just go to someone who's trying to take the Bible as a Bible and say, well, you need to ditch this interpretation. And I think that goes both ways. I mean, it doesn't convince me when a young earth creationist, for instance, comes to me and calls me a compromiser and a follower of Satan. I mean, because I'm looking at him saying, I'm sorry, but I've still got this same data here. And I can't change my mind on the data immediately because so much of what I think is already attached to it. I mean, there was, I, mean I, I think Ron Nash described it as kind of like a spider web, as it were. Mm-hmm. But if you go to something very central in the web and you try and change that, it's going to have huge ramifications. I mean, if I 
mm. learn, for instance, that uh, I would say the grocery store down the street is really X number of miles away and seven number of miles I thought it was. Well, no big deal, okay? But if I learn instead that my wife and I weren't married on July 24th, 2010, then I'm going to say, okay, this is something very much more central to me. I, I might need my sanity checked. And mm. if I find incontrovertible evidence that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, for instance, then I'm going to have to call my whole worldview into question. So mm -hmm. I, there, there's no way you can just give a quick answer to these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Very true. And um, the, the very sheer complexity of these things, I argue in the final chapter of the mm -hmm. book, should lead people today to not feel pressured by the very nature of this controversy to push them to make a decision. People wow. are calling out and saying, if you really love science, or you really love Jesus, or you love the Bible, or if you yeah. love your children, or you love the church— you should take this view. And my argument is, um, if you read this book and you think that there's at least enough there to convince you that the issues are maybe a little more complex and that there's reason to say, hey, maybe if I don't know right now, I can still believe in my Bible and I can hold on to what I think I know that the Bible teaches, or if I have a science view and I'm pretty convinced of it, but I'm not forced to have to agree that I believe on every single issue that everybody's telling me to believe right now. Mm -hmm. Let's suppose, for sake of argument, you had someone like, say, Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis right here with you. Mm -hmm. What would you tell him? Well, in the light of the conversation we're having, mm -hmm. I would... Um, say thank you for your love for the Bible and for science and for creation. I would say much more than that on the positives and thank you side. But I would say, Ken, please read my book so that you will see what I mean about the way your rhetoric is divisive and that it is unfounded, that it's it's not document. You have not documented that people who disagree on the age of the earth have thereby led to the sexual revolution or the undermining of the culture and have compromised the gospel and so on. Um, that that kind of language is divisive, and I would plead with him in that case, to, to, to recognize that he actually hurts his own ministry by causing people to be put off by claims that are beyond mm -hmm. uh, what he's able to substantiate from the Bible. Okay, now, I'm going to be as fair as we can here. So, next guest, uh, so Hugh Ross is sitting here with you. What are you going to say to him? <clears throat> I, I would say what I said earlier. I would say, Hugh... You know, you've been a soldier and taking a lot of heat for being virtually the only major old earth creationist ministry forever. Uh, now you get it from both sides. You get it from the young earth creationists and the evolutionary creationists. Both uh, come after you. Please stand firm in being a kind uh, Christian leader, which I think he's modeled on so many occasions. I think mm. about the way... 20 years ago, he had a, a evangelical theological society meeting where he allowed 
a variety of evangelicals to uh, provide critique of his ministry. And he's still got that um, where you can read it on his webpage. I find that a very positive kind of thing when you're willing uh, to listen and and uh, take seriously people's criticisms. I think that does mark them, but I would I would urge him to to drop the notion of of trying to put up tests so that you can somehow force maybe other uh, other folks to drop their views and so on. I'm not sure that that really fits even with his overall mo through the years of, of being gent uh, a gentle Christian leader. I think I've even heard that if you were to go in the work at Reasons to Believe that Hugh Ross won't hire you until you can tell him something that you disagree with him on biblically. That's probably true, because he does strike me that way. And uh, uh, he, on the other hand, of course, working at, and I don't fault this, this is, I think, actually the way ministries, churches, movements, um, they work. But, you know, he's he's convinced of a particular old earth view, the day age theory and uh, and so on. So those aren't bad things when we hold strong views and we say, here's where we stand. Um, it's just having a sense of of proportion in the way you go about arguing for things so that your listeners or your followers uh, don't misread the importance of your view and what you're trying to say about it. I think in general, Hugh's been pretty good about that. Mm -hmm. I do think he's also been criticized for a number of years on being eccentric theologically. I think that it's a legitimate criticism that uh, many conservative evangelicals have tried to say to him, you can't solve all of the great problems questions, controversies in the history of theology by appealing to particular scientific notions, say, mm -hmm. for instance, multidimensionality, isn't a good way to try to solve, say, uh, the understanding of the Trinity or, or a number of other difficult issues. So, um, I, I think, you know, it's easy for me to sit here and throw pot shots at anyone, and it's painful to do it with any of these, but... Uh, you put me on the spot, and writing a book, like you said, with some measure of insanity, it would appear uh, it's a legitimate question of me. And I actually do uh, talk about these things in the book. Mm -hmm. And where, once again, and having to be inclusive, uh, Francis Collins, I believe it's the main guy behind Biologos, I'm not sure how much he has to do with it, but if you had him here to talk about Biologos, what would you tell him? Well, I would say um, thank you for your great work as an evangelical Christian witness. Uh, obviously, he's done a wonderful work in the Human Genome Project, National Institutes of Health, uh, and his witness as a Christian is so appreciated. I'm grateful for it, and um, I don't want that to be considered you know, diminished by what I'm about to say. On the other hand, I do think that if we're going to follow this little thought experiment— I would want to say something like, you know, the history of Christian thought on these issues is more complex than some of the pieces that I've seen you write on um, that are that are on on the Biologos website. And as the first president, you really have followed a brilliant model that I don't fault you for in that 
you are in some ways emulating what the young earth creationists and Hugh Ross and the old earth creationists have been doing for a very long time, which is trying to get beyond scholarly societies and scholarly academic debates and taking these issues, in this case, evolutionary creationism, and taking it straight to the people. But the difficulty with taking complex theological, historical, and philosophical issues um, and writing them up and uh, presenting them for ordinary uh, readership who don't have those specialties is, is really dangerous. And I'm just concerned that your great confidence on the issue of evolution here can be a danger in that there are so many side issues that for a hundred years after um, Darwin's publication, The Origin of Species, there has been debate about, uh, I'm setting aside the scientific issues here, as I'm not going to pretend I know how to argue them. I have just you know, a layman's view, an educated layman's view of them. But there are a great many theological issues that the Biologos website is struggling with. For instance, the issue of the fall, um, should we reconceive of the fall as being something where human beings having animal appetites, this was Darwin's view that, that uh, the human morality issues from animal emotions and that um, in Darwin's case, it was relativism because he argued that, as I point out in the book, that had human evolution gone a different way, uh, we we might be like a number of animal cultures where we would kill off one another in certain situations and not think anything about it. Um, and the problem with arguing certain things like the fall is that we were um, the human race, if we want to put it this way, anachronistically, before it was the human race, had animal appetites that would be considered sinful for humans to practice these behaviors, let's say murder, or um, as I as I mentioned in the book, uh, this was even Clarence one of Clarence Darrow's famous um, law cases. Uh, the the famous uh, Scopes trial, pro evolutionary lawyer argued that a, a teenager had, had uh, committed murder because of uh, partially because of these animal instincts in his deep past from evolution, and the problem here is that as we sort of experiment, because we're convinced of the theology, or, or rather of the science of evolution, and then we, we sort of experiment with the theology of it, this deeply worries me. And I see, I see this as a real danger that I can't endorse. Uh, I can endorse heartily my uh, conviction that many of these uh, Brethren are sincere, uh, wonderful Christians, but I cannot endorse the ministry itself um, because of this, um, for lack of a better word, sort of uh, theological experimentation. Mm -hmm. Now, I suppose we had someone who's a skeptic of Christianity, an atheist or something like mm -hmm. that, who's on the outside looking in. What would you want to tell them about this whole thing? I would hope that I could have a longer conversation than what I'm about to say. Mm -hmm. But I would say, look, I was once where you are. I viewed Christ Christianity as the height of folly. I hated it with all my heart. I get that. I get for whatever reason you may feel the same. 
But I would say you really do need to check out Jesus Christ and look into him. He's the most important person in the history of Christianity. And you need to look at uh, serious presentations of Christian truth. And there are a great many through the centuries of brilliant intellectuals who are convinced of its truth. And if there really is a God who's made himself known definitively, as Christians believe in the person of Christ, in a saving way to rescue us from our biggest problem, which is alienation from God, which we can't solve ourselves, that only he can and did in coming and becoming one of us without that flaw, that sin that we have, uh, so that we could live forever with him, then then it's worth checking out and looking into this tradition. And there are a great many things that I would want to say, though I don't pretend to have all the answers, and nobody does, no matter their worldview, because only God is omniscient. Nonetheless, I'm fully convinced that the truth of Christianity uh, is uh, will hold up just fine under scrutiny, and in comparison to any other worldview, is a... Uh, there's no competition. And in light of the conversation that we've had today, Nick, I would want to say to outsiders listening to any of this conversation, Mm -hmm. um, it will seem like the strangest thing imaginable. It's like, this is so silly. This whole thing, Christianity talking about theology and science and so on. But I would want to say it a little bit different. I would like to sort of level the playing field by saying, couple of things here. On one hand, it's not hard at all to find in any person's worldview a whole host of things that they struggle with that a person from another worldview will consider very strange um, and can poke holes in. And so it's not it's not that I can't do that with my friend, my atheist friend, or my skeptic friend talking to me. I'm quite confident I could do that. So let's just kind of Remember that when we're talking about these issues. But more importantly, unlike my skeptic friend's worldview, Christians have rightly, at least when they're thinking rightly, have never argued that Christianity is about knowing everything correctly. It's never been about Christians themselves somehow becoming uh, omniscient and knowing everything. Unlike other religions and other worldviews, Christianity is about knowing God savingly in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is this is something that's radical. It's unique. God is the hero in human history. And the development of things like science, the development of philosophy, the development of so much that we even treasure to this day in the Western world um, come not from the genius of human beings, but uh, from God and his mercy as seen in Christ and uh, was bequeathed to the world in the Christian tradition. So there's a whole lot more we could say here, but we are not, if we are, we may not like it and we wish it were not so, but the difficulties we Christians face on issues like science or any other host of other issues is not an issue that undermines somehow our confidence in Christ and the truth of the Bible. Those things are grounded differently. They are grounded in a relationship with a person. And consequently, our ability to walk with confidence uh, in this world isn't dependent upon our strength or our having perfect answers for everything. Mm-hmm. 
Well, uh, Dr. Cable, it's been a very fascinating talk, and I really hope people on all sides of this debate will take what you said to heart. And I also hope that they will go and they will get the book here. Um, do you have a, a blog, website, email, way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you and your work? Well, I, I wish I had it already up. I actually am in, right now in the midst of uh, it's underway, a blog that will be going up to actually answer questions and respond to reviews of the book. So it shouldn't be hard if people will just sort of keep an eye out over the next uh, several weeks, it will be going online. So sorry that I don't have, uh, I actually have a website, but name that we've already secured, but I'm afraid to put it up yet because we're not completely convinced yet that we're going to use the name of it. So I'd feel a little more comfortable not putting out a name yet. But if people will Google my name, Ted, C-A-B-A-L, Cable, and the title of the book, Controversy of the Ages, over the next uh, few weeks, it should come out. Now, I'd like to let people know that I've pulled up the Amazon page here. The Kindle ebook version of this book on Amazon right now is $9.99. The paperback is $13.16. So if you're interested in purchasing, go back. Now, Dr. Caber, do you have uh, any final words you'd like to leave with a deeper waters audience today? Well, let me just mention, uh, I will put a place on the Amazon site. Uh, I think they can, they'll let me do that as, as the author uh, where that blog, they can find it. I want to say to you, Nick, thank you so much for what you do. And uh, thank you for your love for Christ and his people and the truth. And thank you for having me on and letting me talk about the book. Uh, and may the Lord bless you and all your listeners as they continue to uh, serve and follow the Lord. Uh, I really do appreciate that, and I do want to thank you for coming on, and I really hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Thank you, Nick. I can remind everyone, though, that next week we have R. James Sawyer on. We're going to be talking about his book, Resurrecting the Trinity. So if you're interested in the Trinity, you want to be here next week. If you're not interested, you should still be here next week, and you should be interested in the Trinity. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off.